This podcast is brought to you by Schweitzer Church. If you want to learn more about us, please visit any of the links in the description. And now, please enjoy the message. Hey, welcome today. My name is Spencer. So glad that you're here with us. Today is part two of two of a very short series that we're exploring this very elusive and challenging idea of contentment. Next week, we'll start our Advent season, so I hope you'll join us as we begin our our journey towards Christmas and the Christmas season, ending in Christmas Eve. This is such a great time, by the way, to invite people to church. Um, People are open and and, and wanting to experience uh, Christmas in church, and so it's a great, great time. I hope you'll be with us. I'm super excited about the messages we have planned as well as our special uh, Christmas uh, music Sunday we have, so I hope you'll be with us. Hope you'll invite someone to join you as well. Another thing happening in the Christmas season I want to put on your radar, make sure it's on your calendar is on December 3rd, we're going to have a special guest with us, um, Bishop Todd Hunter. He's a bishop in the Anglican Church of North America. We've invited him to be with us on Sunday morning. And then on Sunday night, he's going to give a a teaching time about how uh, American Christians will uh, engage in evangelism in our very postmodern culture. And so I'm, I'm excited about this. If you're interested in things like um, how Christians engage the culture wars, Christian nationalism, uh, postmodernism, and how we engage an, an unbelieving society. This would be an incredible evening for you. It's going to be on December 3rd. The time is still TBD, but uh, put that on your calendar, your radar. If you care about the, the future of the American church and how we engage our unbelieving neighbors, this is something you'll want to attend. Um, today, we're going to wrap up this series on uh, contentment, exploring this very elusive and challenging idea of contentment. I say contentment is elusive. Because in our age of plenty, we live in a world where there never has been more money in the hands of more people, and yet we live as if there's not enough to go around. We all want just more. And so in this age of plenty, we still struggle with uh, with contentment. It's a rare thing. And so we're spending two weeks exploring a teaching that is given by Paul in the New Testament, the book of Philippians, chapter 4. Um, this is a letter that Paul writes. At the very end of this letter, Paul spends just a couple paragraphs unpacking some incredibly helpful, encouraging, and challenging things about how to live into contentment. So we're reading uh, two paragraphs, read one paragraph last week, we're gonna read a second paragraph today, Um, but we're gonna start with what we read last week and then build into this, this second paragraph today. So here's what Paul writes, Philippians chapter four. He says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. One more time, that last line. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Now, we just picked this up mid-thought, out of, out of the blue. I mean, it's part of a letter, and it's the very end of this letter. So what's, what's going on here? Well, Paul is writing this from a Roman prison. He is in prison because he's being persecuted for his faith in Christ, that his confession that Jesus is Lord. Um, this imprisonment is going to lead to his execution. Tradition says that Paul is beheaded in Rome, um, probably in the year 64 or 65, as he's, as he's persecuted here. He's writing from, from prison, he's writing in chains, and yet he writes this line, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. So as we talk about contentment, this elusive, rare thing of contentment, We need to listen to Paul because he knows what he's talking about. This is not just a theory for him or or an abstract idea. He is living this. He is living this. Um, Verse 12, he says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. 
I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. So what is the secret to being content? Well, here it is, verse 13. I can do all of this through him, that is Jesus, who gives me strength. I love how Eugene Peterson in the message paraphrases those two verses. I want to read them to you from the message. Here's how Paul, uh, Eugene Peterson paraphrases this. He says, I found the recipe for being happy, whether full or hungry, hands full or hands empty, whatever I have, wherever I am, I can make it through anything in the one who makes me who I am. So this is where we left off last week. So let's finish this thought. The next verse, verse 14, Paul writes, yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Remember, his troubles are real. This is not theoretical. He is in prison and the Philippians have contributed financially to help him and to help his work uh, through the years as well as this imprisonment. He goes on and says, moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out for Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Now we're going to keep reading in just um, a few moments here, but I want to pause and unpack this because we are learning something here about who the Philippians are that that sh- uh, sets a, a stage that's that's so profoundly powerful when you understand the background of what he's talking about here. So he's writing about Macedonia. Macedonia is a is a nation today, but an ancient world. Macedonia was part of Greece. Um, Alexander the Great came from Macedonia. Alexander's father was Philip, the king of the Macedonians, and Philip conquered a city. He brought it under Macedonian rule, part of the Macedonian kingdom, and that city he named after himself, Philippi. And so if you're from Philippi, you would be a Philippian. And so as we talk about the Philippians, we have to understand that we're talking about being a Macedonian. And I I say that because the Macedonians are talked about in other places in the New Testament, and which is really talking about the Philippians. So I want to go to another place in the New Testament, and then we're going to come back to Philippians 4, because I want to learn a little bit here some more about the Philippians and who they are and this generosity that they've offered to Paul. And so let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, where Paul talks about the Macedonians, aka the Philippians, and listen to how he describes them. And let's learn a few things about these people he's writing to. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches, a.k.a. the Philippians. Verse 2, and listen to this. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Did you, did you catch that? Their, their overflowing joy, their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. So the Philippians, who are providing for Paul's needs while he's in prison, have provided for his work as he is this apostle moving from place to place. They are not giving out of abundance. They are giving out of need. They're not giving because the the stock market is up and they've got extra returns or they got a great bonus this year and after going on vacation, they had some leftovers, they decided to give it to God's work. That's not them at all. They are giving out of their need, this this act of generosity. And as they do this, they give with joy. Now we keep reading verse three, for I testify that they, the Philippians, they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability 
entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. I want you to catch that that last line here, that the practice of sacrificial generosity comes because they submitted themselves to God's will. They gave themselves first of all um, to the Lord. Now, this is so key, and we're going to go back around this a lot today, but but before we do, let's skip down to 2 Corinthians 9, the next chapter. And Paul's going to use the Philippians here as an example of what uh, generosity looks like. So chapter 9, verse 6, remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. All right, so now that we know a few things about the Philippians, um, how they give with sacrificial generosity, let's go back to Philippians 4 and let's finish this thought now that we know more about them. So here's what Paul writes next, uh, picking up right where he left off. Verse 17, he says, Not that I desire your gifts, so I'm not asking for any money here. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. And he's not talking about their bank accounts, he's talking about their spiritual accounts. This is like, you know, the fruit that we bear in our lives or, or the, the joy that comes with giving and generosity. This is about the, the growth that happens in our lives when we begin to trust God and not just in, in, for our provision and not just for ourselves and what we can produce for ourselves. So verse 18, he says, I have received full payment and have more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent. So he's like, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And then comes this really interesting line. They, that is these gifts of generosity, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Now, this is a reference to the Old Testament sacrificial system where the giving of sacrifices, the tithes, was not just about meeting a felt need, like we need to provide for this or that program, but but really it's about honoring God with what we have. And and we just read here that, that this giving is, a, is an act that is pleasing to God. Now, that's a, that's a good question. So, so it's pleasing to God. And, and the reason why giving is, is pleasing to God is the very next line. Verse 19, Paul says, my, question, or my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So question, why is giving pleasing to God? We read it, verse 19, very, very clearly. Very simply, because giving is a practical way that we acknowledge that we trust God with our life. Giving is a practical way that we acknowledge that that what I really need in life, it comes from God and not from myself for what I can produce. And, and, And that's a pretty basic point. I know that we know that. But honestly, lots and lots and lots and lots of people don't get this. Even honestly, lots of Christians don't get this. That there is this practical step in generosity and giving that we need to acknowledge that, um, that, 
that God is the one who gives us everything that we need. I mean, lots and lots and lots of people don't get this. And the reason for this is because we live in a culture where, where the dominant thinking is that the path to a successful, satisfying, fulfilling life is personal happiness. I mean, that's the message of the culture around us, personal happiness. And so you hear people say these kind of adages of personal happiness. You hear it all the time. People say things like, you know, you gotta be true to yourself. You gotta, you gotta live your truth. You gotta be your authentic self. This is all about personal happy to, happiness. One of my favorites, of course, is you gotta, you gotta follow your heart, which is great advice if you just wanna wreck your life, to follow your heart. And so this is, this is how, how people live. And so as we, as we think about this, though, there's this ironic thing that happens when, when people don't understand that the more you make personal happiness the thing that you chase after, the more captive you become to whatever it is that you think is going to make you happy. And so the result is that you end up serving with greater and greater obedience this thing that you think is gonna make you happy, but in the end, it never actually makes you happy. You find yourself caught in this, in this vicious, vicious cycle. And so we've all seen this dynamic at work either within us or within people around us. You can think about how it works here. I mean, for instance, you think, you think um, maybe common idea that money is what's gonna make you happy. Lots and lots of people believe this. And so as they think that money is gonna make them happy, what they end up doing is they end up chasing after, after money and, and, they, and they become captive, um, therefore to materialism. And so they believe, begin to believe that the result is that, that the more they have, the more happy they will be. And so they chase after getting even more and going on better vacations and buying newer cars and getting bigger houses. And, they, and the result is though that that they end up with less contentment. It's like this vicious cycle that starts to play out when you chase after money to make you happy, you actually end up less content um, and you end up then serving the desire for more money in greater and greater obedience while at the same time becoming less and less content. It's a vicious cycle. Another example that we could chase and tease this out with is um, the approval of others. So lots and lots of people, you know, they live for a, a great reputation. They live so that other people will like them and, and think highly of them. And so the, the result is that they chase after this kind of um, approval by other people that other people will think highly of them. And as they chase after this approval, this vicious cycle takes place where they spend more and more time chasing after that. They spend more and more time, therefore, on Instagram or other, other social media platforms thinking and, and wanting more people to get attention from them. And they chase after this. They compromise convictions. And the more they seek after this, the less they actually find um, their own self-confidence and they have less meaningful relationships around them. And it's like this vicious cycle that just takes place. Or another example we could think about is maybe Maybe it's career and advancement and, and getting the job done and, and promotion that's the thing that you chase after. You want, you want more power, you want more prestige, you want those kinds of things, not necessarily maybe money, but it's, it's about getting further in life. And, and so you chase after more work, you chase after you know, more results, you chase after more accomplishments. And maybe it's not business, or if you're a student, it's school, or if you're an athlete, it's sports. And the thing that you discover is that there's always someone ahead of you, so you have to chase even harder after those things. And, and what happens is you find yourself in this vicious cycle. You think, this is the thing that's gonna make me happy, so I'm gonna chase after that. But in the end result is I'm actually less content because this thing is what can, is never actually going to make us happy. And of course, we could go through example after example after example of how that vicious cycle works in our lives. Because listen, there is only one solution out of this vicious cycle. 
only one solution, and that solution is both very simple and very difficult, and that solution is straight from Philippians 4, that solution out of the vicious cycle is to trust God to meet my needs. That is the only solution out of that cycle. And what I mean to say that that, that solution is, is a vicious cycle is both, um, is to trust God with my needs, is to, is, to, is to trust God with the well-being of my life. It's to trust God with the outcome of my life. Even when the circumstances maybe are, are difficult, whether I'm well-fed or hungry, as Paul might say, it's to place the well-being, it's to place the outcome, it's to place my circumstances in the hands of God and to say, thy will be done. This is the only solution out of this vicious cycle of chasing after things in this world only to be found out to be wanting and therefore um, to be less content. Now, I say that this solution is both simple and, and difficult because on one hand, it's very clear that this is the solution. It's self-evident that I need something beyond what this world can offer in order to actually be satisfied. But on the other hand, it's, it's, it's very difficult because what it means is that whatever might come in my life, I'm going to have to trust that God's will is best. I'm going to have to trust that God's will for my life, no matter what, what may come, that God's will for my life is the best possible outcome for my life, whatever that might mean. Even if that means that there are difficult circumstances, I have to trust that God's will for my life is the best possible outcome. This reminds me of a conversation between um, Jesus and Peter that's all about submitting to to the best possible outcome for our life and the will of God. And this is a, a conversation that happens right at the end of the Gospel of John. So after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, um, one morning Jesus shows up to Peter and John and some others. They're out fishing and Jesus shows up and he starts to have a conversation with, um, with Peter. And, and three times um, he asks Peter a question. He asks Peter this. He says, Simon, son of John, that is, that is Peter, do you love me? Three times. Now, Jesus asks Peter this question three times because just a few days before this, three different times, Peter had denied that Jesus, he even knows Jesus. And so Jesus is, is, um, is what he's doing here is he's restoring Peter from this failure. So that's why he does it three times. So each time um, he asks Peter this question, do you love me? Peter would say, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And so Jesus would come back with a line, something like, well, then feed my sheep or take care of my sheep. And that's what he would say back to, to Peter. And and he does this because Jesus talks about himself as a shepherd uh, on a regular basis. He called himself the good shepherd. And this is how Jesus talked about his ministry and his role, even though he wasn't actually a shepherd. He was a carpenter turned preacher. But he talked about his, his ministry as, as being a shepherd. And so when Jesus says these three things to Peter about feed my sheep, take care of my sheep, what he's really doing is he's saying, Peter, I want you to do what I've been doing. I want you to, to carry this mantle forward. I want you to take over for where I left off. Like this is an incredible thing that Jesus is giving to Peter. It's like, Peter, here is your life's work. I want you to spend your years doing this. This is your calling. This is what God wants for you. This is God's will for you, is that you would be the shepherd to my people, just like I was. You're gonna take over where I left off. It's an incredible thing. It's an incredible thing. So, so this is God's will for your life. Peter, just to do this. You do, and as you do this, you're going to trust that God's will is best, even when maybe it's difficult and, and, and it may be easier to do something else. You have to trust God with your life and the outcome of your life. This is your life's work. Now, after the third time that Jesus says, feed my sheep, he follows this up and he immediately says this. This is John 20. 
says, very truly, I tell you, Peter, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Now, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Now, church tradition holds that in the year 64 AD, Peter is crucified by the Romans. And so this line about being led to where you do not want to go and your hands stretched out is a, for a long time has been understood to be a prophecy about the kind of death that Peter would give. And so this conversation between Jesus and Peter, it starts off just absolutely incredible. I'm going to restore you, Peter, from your failure. I'm going to give you your life's work. This is, this is what God's will for your life is. And oh yeah, by the way, it's going to be really hard. <laughs> but this is God's will for you. You're going to glorify God through this. And so no matter what comes though, Peter, you got to follow me. Now, I love what happens right after this. So Peter hears this. His hands are going to be stretched. He's going to take him where he doesn't want to go. All that kind of stuff, the hard stuff. But listen to what happens next. Verse 20, Peter turned and he saw uh, that the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's code for John, the author of this, was following him. And so what do you think Peter does when he sees John? And remember, these are normal people. These are like, we call them saints, but these are normal people. What does a normal people do when, when they hear this kind of language from Jesus? Well, verse 21, Peter saw him, he saw John, and he asked, well, Lord, what about him? <laughs> I love that so much. Like, if I have to go through this, he has to go through it too, right? What about, what about him? His life's not going to be better than my life, right? What, what about him? He's going to have to suffer just like I'm going to have to suffer. He's going to have the same struggles I'm going to have, right? If I'm going to be committed to doing your will, he's got to go through this hardship too, right? Well, listen to what Jesus replied back with. Verse 22, Jesus answered, If I want him to remain alive until I return. In other words, if his life is different than yours, if his life has things that you wish yours had, if his life is easier than yours, if he makes more money than you, if he drives a better car than you, if his job is less stressful than yours, if he lives in a bigger house, if he goes on different vacations, if you just fill in the blank with whatever it is, if I want him to remain alive until I return, Jesus looks at Peter and he says this, what is that to you? You must follow me. You must follow me. The will of God is the best possible outcome for your life. I'm going to say that again. The will of God is the best possible outcome for your life. And contentment is only going to be found in submission to the will of God. As long as you chase after anything else in the world, as long as you make personal happiness the goal of your life and to try to live as everyone else lives, as long as you try to climb the ladder, accumulate wealth, you know, to, to, to have the newest and the biggest, if that's the goal of your life, Jesus is gonna be looking at you saying, well, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because when you chase after those things, those things that our culture teaches us that we're supposed to have, personal happiness, success, wealth, uh, comfort, reputation, you are always gonna find yourself in that cycle of discontentment. It always leads there. 
But as you begin to serve those things with greater and greater obedience, you're always gonna find yourself lacking and wanting even more, and you become captive to those things that ultimately will never make you happy. Now, what allowed the Philippians then to have this incredible, sacrificial kind of joy, inspiring kind of, kind of joy and generosity that they had? Well, it's because as we read in Philippians 4, they gave themselves to the Lord. They trusted the Lord to meet their needs. They, they, they trust God with the outcome of their life. And this is, becomes a, a criteria for how it is that we find contentment. So let me give you a quick diagnostic. If, if you kind of want to use this as you think through your life and do I trust God's will for my life or am I chasing after other things? And, and I especially think about the culture that we live in that elevates money and has this hyper focus on money. And so one of the challenges in particular that we're going to face as modern Americans is always going to be our relationship with money and having a disordered relationship with money. So um, here's a diagnostic tool to think through. If you find giving and generosity, tithing, you know, 10%, if you find that to be a difficult or even an offensive thing, it's highly likely that you're not trusting God with the outcome of your life. If you find tithing to be something that is um, off-putting, something that you don't want to talk about or think about, it's, it's highly likely that you're chasing after something else and you don't trust God with the outcome of your life. It's highly likely that this is revealing to us that, that there's something else in there that you're chasing after. And it's going to come through confession, repentance, where we put our lives and the outcome of our lives back in God's hands and say, whatever happens, whether I'm well-fed, whether I'm hungry, whether I have plenty or I'm in need, I can do all this through you who strengthens me because I'm going to trust you with the outcome of my life. So as we as we tend uh, in today, today um, we're going to end like we normally do, like, like we normally do with prayer. But, but today, I want to I offer up a prayer. I didn't write this, but I want to read a prayer to you. This is, I'm borrowing this from another pastor named John Tyson. And this is a prayer about living into this practice of generosity that is really about trusting God with the outcome of our life um, and rejecting the values of the world that, that teach us that we just need to accumulate more and chase after more um, while we end up just uh, finding ourselves less and less satisfied. So I'm going to end with this prayer written by John Tyson. I find this really convicting and helpful for myself to maybe reorder my own relationship with money. And maybe this is helpful for you as well. Here's how the prayer goes. Holy Father, there is nothing I have that you have not given me. All I have and am belong to you, bought with the blood of Jesus. To spend everything on myself and to give without sacrifice, is the way of the world that you cannot abide. But generosity is the way of those who call Christ their Lord, who love him with free hearts and serve him with renewed minds, who withstand the delusions of riches that chokes the word, whose hearts are in your kingdom and not in the systems of the world. I am determined to increase in generosity until it can be said that there is no needy person among us. I am determined to be trustworthy with such a little thing as money that you may trust me with true riches. And above all, I am determined to be generous because you, Father, are generous. It is the delight of your daughters and sons to share your traits and to show what you are like to all the world. Amen. Thank you for listening to a Schweitzer podcast. We hope you found this message to be helpful and encouraging. If you enjoyed this experience, please remember to share us with your friends and neighbors. Thanks again for stopping by and remember, 
you are loved.